welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics that matter most across Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. Taylor, be honest with me. How often do you think about Canada's biotechnology sector? Well, I feel like there was a time there during the pandemic when I thought about it quite a bit. Uh, and mostly to the extent of why don't we have vaccines yet while the Americans do. But uh, since then, I have to be honest with you, I haven't thought about it very much. Yeah, I'm like you. And I think a lot of people are as well. Definitely uh, thinking about the strength of the Canadian biotech sector a little bit more after the pandemic, right? Because when and if a new disease or virus shows up, hopefully not anytime soon. How equipped are we to respond to that? So part of the work in this sector is about developing life-saving coronavirus vaccines, but there's also drugs and solutions that offer themselves up to a variety of different problems and industries. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know a ton about the sector, but we have the perfect guest on today who does. Andrew Casey is the president and CEO of Biotech Canada, the National Biotechnology Industry Association. That makes him the primary communicator for Canada's biotech industry with the government, regulators, international bodies, media, and the Canadian public. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start things off very high level. Tell me why Canadians should care about having a strong biotechnology sector. This was a question that had a different answer four years ago. So four years ago, if you had asked me that question, I'd be making a very passionate plea to say, pay attention to this sector. It's really important. We have to think about new medicines that are coming. We have to think about ways to change the way we manufacture, grow, live our lives. Um, then in 2020, we all know what happened. We had a pandemic kind of come, come around. And... I don't think we need to really explain the value of the sector to a lot of people anymore. In fact, when I go to the dog park or I talk to people that I used to talk to about my job uh, who would ask questions about what is biotech, now it's what exactly does an mRNA vaccine do and how does it work? So everybody's experience has really shifted considerably since the onset of the pandemic. I think now there's a recognition not only amongst policymakers but also the general public that this is probably a sector that we should be paying a bit more attention to because we probably haven't seen the last of the health challenges like a pandemic. I don't know whether it's COVID-50 or COVID-60. We don't know if it's a coronavirus, but I think we would be prudent for us to prepare for the next challenge. And in doing so, identifying kind of the where the solutions are going to come from and can we play a role in developing those solutions? And then what value does that bring back to both the economy and society more broadly when you go in that direction? So I think that that's probably how it touches everybody. If it hasn't touched everybody directly, either through taking the vaccine during COVID or seeing the value of the vaccines and getting us back to somewhat of normal, I think you've probably been sleeping for the past four years. Okay, so the sector is vaccines, but it's also what else? Yeah, so if you think about the world going to 10 billion people. Uh, and that's putting enormous pressure on the planet. We see it in the form of changing climate, a changing environment, a changed environment, in fact. Um, we really have to figure out how to live our lives differently. We have to manufacture, grow, just lessen our imprint on, on the planet. Biotechnology is one of the ways that that can be done. So you think about manufacturing differently, more effectively, more efficiently, combating drought, tests, all those sorts of things. Biotech is one of the ways we can do that. So it's one of those solution spaces that's going to really allow us to sort of shift the way we're impacting the planet. From a health perspective, it's in the space of bringing new medicines, new therapeutics, the vaccines. It's very comprehensive, cell and gene therapies, all the types of things that are really going to change the way we address diseases that are sort of impacting all of us, both as we're living through a changed environment and it's having an impact on our health and so we have to find new ways to sort of heal ourselves. But there are also new diseases just emerging or, be, or at least being identified. And so trying to find ways to combat those as well. So biotechnology are the new types of drugs, which are sort of large, complex molecules as opposed to the old pill format that people would have been accustomed to, like an aspirin. Complex molecules are biologics. They can be live. Uh, they, they take a lot of, uh, it's a very complex manufacturing process to, to, to build them. But that's the biotech solutions that are, that are coming. 
So you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned medicines, you mentioned implications for manufacturing. Can you give us kind of like an overview of the entire sector, like what the ecosystem looks like and maybe what the key parts are? Yeah, it, it, and it is an ecosystem. So it, it spreads across the country. If I just take Biotech Canada's membership, so just to, for the benefit of the audience, we're the National Association. We represent the biotech industry in Canada. We have some 240 member companies uh, in the association there across the country and in every province where there's a hub and, and the hubs kind of have specialties for the most part, but they're they're right across the country and, and there are a number of verticals. The, there's the types of technology or types of biotechnology. So you've got industrial, agricultural, environmental biotechnology, and those are the companies that are you know developing new um, new fuels, uh, new ways to grow, new way, and new ways to manufacture. In the health life sciences space, you, that's where it's, it's a sort of a larger and more complex bundle, which includes the large multinational pharmaceutical companies, the brand name companies that most people will recognize, like Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, Merck, all those types of companies. But the big part of our membership is that early stage company category, which are these companies that have an idea that kind of come out of our universities or our research institutes across the country. And they're trying to commercialize that idea. They're trying to bring it to a place where it's actually going into people as a solution for their health challenge. And they're at different stages. They're at very early stage where they can be one or two people and they've got this idea, or they can be two, 300 people uh, and have advanced that innovation a bit further. Maybe they're in clinical trials, uh, but they're more developed, more mature, but not yet globally commercial and around, uh, out there. Then you add into that mix venture capitalists. So we've got all the venture capital uh, companies in the country. That's an important part of that ecosystem. The multinational pharmaceutical companies play an important part in the ecosystem in that they are kind of partners and investors as well. And then you have a number of um, what you can call accelerators or incubator types of organizations that are creating solutions for growing the talent base here, for growing companies and launching them, supporting their growth and getting to commercial space, getting to be where they have enough capital to go to that next phase. So it's a, it's quite a diverse ecosystem that's across this country. Uh, and it's, as I said, there are pockets of strength in every single province. I, I had never associated biotech with manufacturing before. What does a biotech company in the manufacturing sector do? They, they kind of support the competitiveness. So they not, they don't really alter the manufacturing. Although I guess I could, depending on the type of technology, but I'll think of an example. Like, there was a company, um, I think it's been sold now, but there was one that had a CO2, it had an enzyme that would eat CO2s. And mm. so it was a way of reducing the environmental impact of that. If you put it into the oil sands, for instance, and said, okay, if you're shell, you can use this to reduce your CO2 emissions. There was another company that was taking a version of a mustard seed um, that was genetically modified so you could grow it in places where you couldn't grow other produce so you put a place where there's less sunlight or less moisture or less nutrients in the soil you grow mm -hmm. that mustard seed you crushed it you take the oil out and the oil was turned into jet fuel that went into airplanes and and because it was organically made it, it had no emissions the meal that was left over after you took the oil out was then put it back into the food chain so it had a nice sort of life cycle story there as well but that allowed, for instance, the aviation industry sort of to lessen its imprint. So it's it's that kind of it's it, it it facilitates companies to sort of reduce their impact on the on the climate or on the environment. Uh, you, you mentioned different regions having different specialties and in, in different sectors. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Like, which parts of the country are leading? I guess in different uh, areas of the space. Yeah, if you look at the the life sciences and health space, you would you gravitate towards Montreal, Toronto um, are the two big urban centers, and that's where a lot of that is. But there's a really important and thriving cluster out in Vancouver in the life sciences health space. In fact, probably mm -hmm. the most vibrant one in the country is out in Vancouver, where the, the, the greatest number of companies, at least from a number produced, but also the size of them now, that are Canadian. Um, when you move into the Midwest and the West, you sort of get into more where there's a agricultural slant to some of it. So that's not surprising. Although there are some, some of the drug life sciences companies in, in uh, Alberta and Manitoba as well. Um, out East, you have a real mixture, but aquaculture, you're getting into that space as well. So you could sort of understand, depending where you are in the country, there's gonna yeah. be some leanings for the biotechnology space. And when we put it all together, 
what size of an industry are we looking at? Like, what's the contribution to the economy that we're talking about here? You know, it's really hard to pin it down. They used to, to calculate it. So the government used to have this study that was done by StatsCan. It calculated exactly how big the industry is and, and its contribution to the economy. I think uh, this will be dated now, but it was sort of like an $85 billion industry 10, 15 years ago. I don't know what it is now. It's estimated there are about a thousand companies. It's growing. Um, and, th- and unfortunately, that's just a number that's just not, we just can't quantify it right now. So earlier you mentioned that uh, people are seeing the importance of biotechnology kind of in two phases, pre and post pandemic. I'm wondering what the pandemic taught us about Canada's position in biotechnology as everyone was kind of rushing to develop a vaccine. Yeah, and I'll answer this. Like, oh, yes, from a Canadian perspective, we can answer that question, but I don't think Canada is unique. So every other country around the world probably went through a version of self-reflection and realization that, oh boy, we're in trouble here, uh, right at the onset of the pandemic. So if you think back to those early days, uh, there was a moment in time when I think the prime minister came out and said, we can't manufacture vaccines in this country because we don't have any left, any manufacturing capacity left in this country. And I had to go out there and sort of correct the record a little bit. I think, I think what he, he, in terms of his briefing, so it's not him, he would have been briefed about this. Um, we didn't have the ability to manufacture mRNA vaccines at the time. We had ample vaccine manufacturing capacity, but just not that new technology that hadn't been developed. It hadn't been developed in most countries, so everybody was in the same position. But I think when you reflect back on that moment, that was probably an indicator of something broader, which is every country going, oh boy, we don't have solutions for this, and where are we going to get them from? And so you saw these sort of, first of all, there was a worry that elbows were going to get up, it's going to get super competitive as countries tried to look after their own populations before other countries. And there was a bit of tension there, but then I think everyone understood that we're going to have to deal with this together because even if Canada was to somehow manage to do everything for itself in its own little bubble, it was not going to do us any good if the rest of the world was still infected and and passing around the, the virus. So everybody sort of got together, but everybody also recognized, boy, we're probably going to go through this again. We have to prepare for it. Uh, it would be foolish not to. We don't know what the next crisis is going to be, so we can't possibly predict what the next solution is going to be. So I think every nation, Canada, very much in the same boat, is now saying, okay, let's sort of create as much opportunity as possible in the life sciences health space to make sure that we've got the greatest potential to come up with a solution when the next crisis comes, whatever it happens to be. And I think the best way to look at that is if you think of the Pfizer vaccine, that everybody recognizes the Pfizer vaccine, but in fact, it was a partnership. And it was Pfizer partnering with the German biotech company called BioNTech. And they're the ones that have the coding. Uh, but there was a third party in that, which was Acuitas, and that's a Vancouver-based company. And Acu- Acuitas had developed the, the envelope, the lipid nanoparticle envelope, in which the coding went into it, that was then put into the body. So Pfizer did the large-scale manufacturing they took the technology from BioNTech, or they partnered to take the technology, and then they used the lipid nanoparticle envelope to deliver the vaccine into the body. I think that's probably a model that everybody's looking at for the future, that we're, no one's going to be able to figure out what the next solution is going to be. So let's sort of create as many chances as we can to sort of solve for it, recognizing that we're probably going to have to partner with other countries or other companies or whatever it's going to be when the time comes. As a follow-up to that, what were some of the specific problems? You're saying all countries kind of came to similar yeah. realizations about where they where they stood when it comes to addressing a crisis like this. What were the, some of the specific lessons that they took away? Well, let's start what, how they're trying to address it. So you, one is, do we have enough biomanufacturing capacity? Can we manufacture at scale for whatever the solution that's going to be? Uh, and, and I think that that's a... Again, that needs a global solution because you can build some manufacturing, but you'd have to recognize that there are supply chain issues that if they impact one country, that interrupts the entire flow across the world. So if you if you look at what Moderna did as, as an example, post-pandemic, they're now starting to put biomanufacturing capacity in a number of different countries. They had only the U.S. operations originally. 
Pfizer's kind of doing likewise. All these other companies are starting to sort of build up their biomanufacturing capacity in other places. So I think we're going to see a lot of investment into that space. And indeed, if you look at the Canadian government's response, they're investing into a biomanufacturing or at least developing Canada's biomanufacturing capacity. I think the other part of it is really trying to grow your your life sciences sector more broadly. Because if it, let's think about this. If you went back 10 years in time and I said to you, not you, I've said to the government, look, it's going to be a coronavirus and it's going to be in 2019. So you had that advantage that, that you know that that's coming. You probably would not have bet on mRNA vaccines as your solution. You probably would have looked to the traditional vaccines, the protein-based vaccines, right. and maybe even tried to develop a therapeutic. That's with the advantage of knowing it was going to be a coronavirus in 2019. Now I'm going to tell you, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what year it's going to be. So you can't possibly predict what we need to do what we need to develop. So that's where they're going to start to invest in the creating as many shots on net as possible. So that's where you sort of invest into growing companies out of ideas. So investing in research, investing in scientists, and generating ideas that can ultimately become solutions. Um, and that, I think, is where we're at now, where they sort of say, recognize what, that, what kind of the fix we were in. And there's two ways to to help you get out of it. One is to sort of at least have some capacity to manufacture it. And it looks like mRNA is going to be a solution, at least for the foreseeable future, I guess for 10 to 15 years and for other things as well. But at the same time, just sort of create as many possible options for those solutions, depending on what that next crisis is going to be. And then if you put it all together in between now and when that next crisis is, is it's, it's useful for other things. So you're not sort of uh, building this thing, turning the lights out, putting paper on the windows and shutting the doors, and then going away and coming back in 20 years and then flicking everything on when you need it because it won't work then. It has to be constantly evolving between now and when we do need it. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because there was this big ramp up of capacity to make vaccines during the pandemic. What happens to all of that capacity once you know we're not making a COVID ne- vaccine anymore? Which we hope is very soon. But right. Again, the mRNA technology looks like it's really adaptable to other other things. So it was most of the mRNA was actually being developed for cancers. So hopefully what it does is it goes back to that space and starts to solve for other problems because it is so adaptable. And then if the coding is different for the current, you know, whatever we COVID 50, then we take that and, and apply it there. And so that but in the meantime, the, the, the technology has evolved as, as well as the manufacturing process along with it. So that, that would be my hope is that you, you keep it evergreen uh, by keeping it commercial in other ways. And then when the next crisis comes up, it's ready to go. So that's probably it. And also mRNA manufacturing is different from the traditional protein manufacturing. That's where you get into a much bigger footprint in terms of its needs, you know, whether it's eggs or whatever you're using. mRNA is, is quite scalable. It's, it's a smaller facility. It doesn't require all sorts of different, uh, the technologies that are in the traditional vaccine. Okay. Yeah, no, I remember reading those stories about how to make the protein vaccines during COVID you needed, you know, embryos and eggs yeah. and these sorts yeah, of things. Complex process. Like, wow, this is a real undertaking. So many eggs. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, one of the, uh, and, uh, one of the, and, and look, and there again, like something, like something happens to the supply chain from eggs and it, like, that's where it all gets disrupted where that's yeah. really some of the mRNA, but you know, the other back to, part of the earlier discussion at that time, if you recall, uh, when the prime minister did say we, we, we can't make this, and we said, well, why don't we just switch? Why don't we just take those protein-based manufacturers and make them have them do mRNA? The problem with that, and this is what we have to think about going forward, is that's a little bit like, yes, Coke, uh, sorry, 7-Up and Champagne are both clear liquids that are bubbly. You drink them, you put them in bottles, you drink them out of glasses. <laughs> But that's where the similarity ends. You can't manufacture Moe at a 7-Up factory and you can't take 7-Up and ma- you wouldn't ask Moe to make 7-Up. Completely different processes, even though in a glass they look identical. And so that's kind of what we have to be thinking. We just don't know. You can't just sort of flick a switch back and forth and say, well, today we're going to do protein and tomorrow we're going to do mRNA. It doesn't work that way. So we have to have as many shots on net from a, even from a biomanufacturing standpoint. Has Canada developed that mRNA manufacturing capacity since that time? Yeah. So Moderna has announced that they're they're building a facility in Montreal. 
Um, and th I suspect that there will be more. And I know that some of the, uh, what we would call contract manufacturers, so they're, they are kind of one step down from the end finished product. Uh, we have a number of those in Canada, so they will support the development of those uh, manufacturing systems as well so they'll be part of the mix and that's another area i think we can invest in which is if you if you for instance back to that seven up and, and champagne if you make bottles you can be used you can probably go either way right mm -hmm. so in the in the vaccine space there are certain parts of the, of the supply chain that you can actually manufacture that can be used for a number of different types of vaccines whether they're mRNA or traditional protein, but you can be part of that as well. So I think even being part of that process would be useful because we can then support the global rollout in the next type of crisis like that. Right. That's a surprisingly easy way to picture it in the form of a 7-Up supply chain. It, it I, works. I have yeah. I got to go on <laughs> as it happens because they heard me quite and they said, that's, somebody's got to explain that to us because that was... <laughs> Like, th remember, this is a time when we were taking our groceries home and washing them. We were leaving boxes that had been delivered to the house by Amazon in the yeah. garage for a week so they could decontaminate. We were in, like, just crazy times. So everybody was angry. Why couldn't we just do this? Why couldn't we? Why are we getting it sooner? Um, and you think about the decisions that were being made. It, it was just nuts. And so there was like, well, why don't we just take that plant, which would be just like saying uh, to a car plant, why don't you start making bikes? Well, it's not quite the same. Yeah, it, it reminds me uh, of all the housing people that are asking us to just turn the offices into apartments a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lot yeah. of lot of parallels here, and it's not That's that true. easy, I guess. I, I have one more question about the, the the pandemic that we've now found ourselves on the other uh, side of. Um, I didn't know that a Canadian firm played a pretty big role in developing that Pfizer vaccine. I know at the time a lot of eyes were on Sanofi to develop mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a vaccine here. Was their inability to, to do so considered a failure or was it a win because Canada found a way to still work really closely with the with the U.S.? I'm, I'm wondering what the sector kind of takes away from that experience. Well, certainly there's a win there. There's no question that, that Acuitas being part of the Pfizer solution um, was a huge win, not only for Acuitas and, and Canada being part of the process, but it, when, when COVID first hit, the school of thinking, certainly with those who knew about all of this, thought that vaccines would be three to five years away and probably we'd have therapeutics before we'd have vaccines. That we had 95% effective vaccines by the fall of 2020 was in large part because the technologies were there and ready to go and, and that was able to be put safely into people. That's a major win, like just the speed at which we are able to do that and translate that innovation, the mRNA innovation into effective, highly effective and safe vaccines was, was remarkable. So obviously a massive win there. I wouldn't consider the Sanofi part a loss. Uh, they, you know, Sanofi, AstraZeneca, there were a number of others that were also working on, on vaccines. But when it became clear that the mRNA was 95% effective, and could be manufactured at scale. And and then once they figured out the distribution and the cold chain and all the rest of it, it kind of made, why would you make another vaccine? Let's just start to sort of do this. So I think there was probably some development that just sort of was stopped at that point in time. Mm -hmm. The other part is um, you just don't know. One of the things I've learned about this industry is what is seen as a failure or a it didn't work in the clinic in a when you're pursuing it for a cancer or for whatever it is quite often they discover something in the data that says well that's interesting why did this drug that we were developing for cancer it had this impact on this subset of patients and they'll go down that path and explore that and all of a sudden oh well look at that that's kind of cool and that's that's how discovery quite often happens in this space. And so I have no idea what was going on behind the doors of the Sanofis and the other companies that were also working very, because they're what they were at some point, there were like a hundred different candidates out there, right? So where did those technologies go? They're, they didn't throw them out. So they're probably still working on them. And we may see them in some other format later on. So I never look at anything in this industry as a real failure. It's kind of a, you take a lesson and then maybe it changes your, your path and it leads to another discovery. So who knows what's going to come, but I would venture to guess that of all those candidates, 
that another version of the mRNA, which was at some point in time, not, not, you know, a success that will emerge and who knows when and when, when we'll need it. Let me ask you about um, commercialization because there was a piece in the globe recently. Uh, I just want to read a, an excerpt from it talking about some of the challenges that Canada faces when it comes to biotech and medical research. And they wrote, despite our country's ability to make groundbreaking discoveries, something happens along the way that's keeping us from realizing the full value of our research efforts. Many Canadian innovations never make it out of the lab. And if they do, they end up south of the border. So I'm wondering if you agree with that assessment and if so, why this is happening. Well, I can't disagree with it, but I will explain why it's happening and why it's not necessarily a bad thing. So, okay. absolutely, 100%, of no matter where you are, Canada, no matter where, 95% of what people are working on never makes it out of the lab. It, 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 science is very binary, and we, if, if everything that worked in a rat worked in a human, we'd be the healthiest species in the world. And there's a whole bunch of rats that are cancer-free, but that's good for them. It doesn't have any impact on us. So that's that's the reality of scientific discovery and, and moving an innovation forward, is that most will not get out of the lab. The more interesting discussion happens when, once you get out of the lab, now, okay, you let, you've got something that looks like it can show, it shows good efficacy. You're going to now try and show safety and that efficacy at a greater scale, and you move into the clinic, and then all of a sudden, yeah, that company's innovation looks like it's going to work. And this is where the next challenge comes in. Okay, so you are a company, you've got a, a solitary molecule that's going to solve for something. And I'll use as an example, Bellis Health out of Montreal, which had a, a drug for a chronic cough. Um, in a, in a pa select patient population. Uh, they recently sold themselves to GSK for one, one and a half billion dollars or something of that nature. There is a reality to this world that if you develop a drug for a certain patient population, um, it makes more sense for a large-scale manufacturer like a pharma company with global reach in terms of marketing and distribution and sales to have them d distribute it to the world. You're, you're not going to be able to do it at scale on your own. It wouldn't make much sense with a single mo molecule, whereas the, like a GSK has got a pipeline of multiple molecules and they've got the ability to manufacture it at, at scale and then distribute globally. So that business model makes some sense. If you're another type of company that develops something that's more of what we would call a platform technology, where you can partner with a GSK or a Pfizer and I'll use Upsellera as a good example out of Vancouver, and they partnered with Lilly. And you, if you look at the success of Upsellera, now they're growing um, at an amazing rate in Vancouver. They're building up massive amounts of space. They're hiring people at a rapid rate. That's a company that we would like to see stay in Canada and anchor here. And so one model is, yes, you grow to a certain point, you show efficacy, you sell yourself off. But there's another model that says, okay, now you can grow to scale. And you can do globally what you need to do and be commercial, but be uh, stationed here in Canada. That's where we have failed as a country to date. So we're one of the only mm -hmm. jurisdictions, you know, a pharmaceutical jurisdiction in the world that has yet to develop its own anchor company. So companies that would sort of uh, be built out of here on a Canadian innovation, then grow to scale and then become commercially, globally commercial and stay in Canada. That's what we need to do a better job of. And if I think back to the you know, discovery of insulin as a good example, that led to the creation of a company called Novo Nordisk, which is in Denmark. Well, if we discovered insulin today, would we have Novo Nordisk in Denmark or could we take that insulin and turn it into Canada Disc or whatever? I don't know what you would call it, but create that Canadian company. And that's what we have to do a better job of is helping this company scale up and get the size here in Canada and be um, commercial and um, global in reach, but hiring and doing all of their stuff out of Canada. Okay, so why doesn't that happen here? Well, there's a, there's a number of factors. Um, I, I think access to capital is one, access to talent. Um, but I think we're now at a place where we actually have some companies with a platform technology that show themselves to be probably ready for that. 
So then you think about, are there other policies that government can, can act that would create greater stickiness for them? So tax policy that would allow them to sort of, uh, you know, to generate revenue at a lesser taxable rate in cannabis. That what gets them to stay here. How are we treating their intellectual property? Are we, is it secure here? So there's a number of factors that go into it. Access to talent is a big one. Uh, so can you get enough people? Um, that's proven to be a challenge, not only in Canada, but elsewhere, because everybody's competing for the same people. Um, but now, and, and I think that's one of the advantages also, if, if you actually do get an anchor company, and if I use an example in the tech industry, when you saw Blackberry Rim down in Kitchener-Waterloo, once that became a global company, what did that do for that area? Well, all of a sudden, the universities start to focus on building up talent for that company. More yeah. companies came to either support the growth of Blackberry Rim or ride that wave and create a new kind of company. So it became that kind of a hub. And if we can create a couple of those anchor companies, then it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where you've got one that leads to others because you're attracting talent, you're attracting investors, and other companies will start out of it, particularly those that were in that first company for the ride, say, I want to do that myself because you tend to have these entrepreneurs that enjoyed that and they want to start their own companies. So they go off and, and start another company next door. And I think it just requires you get a couple to get to get that ball rolling, and then you sort of ha- you'll see it sort of self fulfill. It's kind of like uh, a chicken and egg. Sorry, Sarah. It's kind. Of, okay. It seems like kind of a chicken and egg issue here, and we, we see this in other sectors too. Like this seems to be the logic behind bringing the Stellantis and VW battery plants here because we want to foster that ecosystem. But I, I assume sector by sector there are some differences in what it would take to get those anchor companies there so i'm curious if there's like one or two unlocks that need to happen for a company like Epsellera or another canadian company to be those those anchor businesses yeah i think there's a couple stages at which there is that unlocks so i think access to capital so is there enough capital available to those companies at critical times in their growth and if if, if so then they've got the capital to succeed then you see the scaling up so you'll see with an upseller where they're building infrastructure uh, wet labs uh, those are the types of things now they're going to build it for themselves because they've got enough capital so that helps i think then the next big piece would be the talent can you get the people so if you've got the capital you got the infrastructure do you have the talent to drive that innovation forward um, and attracting people to Canada uh, is, is you're, as I say, there are a couple of things that are inherently mobile in this sector. All, well, all of it is in the sense that the company is an, basically an idea. It can, ideas can go anywhere. Um, investment, well, investment is sort of global by nature, and it's moving all over the globe and looking for a place to sort of rest and, and, and get its returns. And then talent is the other piece. People tend to be able to pack up and go anywhere. Uh, and they want to go to a place where they want to live, where it's comfortable, all the rest of it. So I think trying to attract those people is going to be probably the next biggest phase. And then can you can you make the conditions here from a regulatory standpoint um, as attractive as possible for a company? So, so it you know some of it is just a whole bunch of different pieces need to come together to create that stickiness. And then some of it's about the technology. And of course, once you build up infrastructure, that makes it that much harder for it to go as well. So the bigger they become, the more they invest in the economy, their roots get deeper and, and stickier. And I think that's what you need. So I, I'm not so sure that there's a magic bullet in all this. I think it's a, it's a sequencing of events that needs to take place for a company to actually scale up and stay. Okay. What would at least be encouraging to see from a policy perspective, I guess going back to, to Taylor's example with, with uh, incentives for Volkswagen, um, like the, the IMF came out, I think, today and is kind of criticizing like a company-specific approach. So I imagine there's like a balance that needs to be struck between investments put behind specific companies. But are there any policy kind of mechanisms that you think would be useful or helpful to see? There are. And some are quite specific to the types of companies we're talking about. I'll use one example. There's something called a patent box, which is kind of a terrible name because it it conjures up an image that it's not really what it is. Essentially, what it allows the company to do is if you've got some commercial operation, um, but it's not the primary for what you're doing, but you're making some money off of one of your bits of IP, you can continue. You can make that money and it's taxed at a lower rate because that allows you to reinvest it into the company. Little things like that really help. So that it makes us more competitive with other jurisdictions like you know, in Ireland, for instance, which everyone knows is trying to always track these types of companies. 
Um, some of the longstanding uh, policies like this uh, scientific research and, and experimental development tax credit, which is the SRNED tax credit, those are really critical to a lot of companies, particularly as they're sort of getting to a, you know, that mid-scaling up phase and, and early phases. Um, so those would be really important. Are there maybe immigration policies that could be helpful to attract people and retain people where you have tax holidays, for instance, for somebody coming from another country to come and live in Canada that you say for three years? Uh, the way we treat um, stock options would be another one. So making sure that whatever we do with stock options from a tax perspective, that we're not uh, creating an uncompetitive place for companies. So if your tax options are taxed, sorry, if your stock options are taxed at a higher rate in Canada than they are, say, in the U.S., that makes us uncompetitive. And somebody's going to go, well, I'm going to go to the U.S. because I get better options and they're taxed at a lower rate. So we've got to keep up with with the competition that way. So I, I think there's a number of different ways that the industry, where I would you know, try and not, not go is to try and pick the technology that's going to win uh, because government's not good at that. Let, let the, the industry and the venture capitalists, those people that have the real knowledge in the space, figure that part out. And then once that's kind of been determined, then government can take a look at like an upseller going, okay, investors have already gone to that company. Now this is a company we can sort of get behind because we want to try and whatever we can do to push it across the finish line. That's in our, our, our purview. When it comes to the regulatory system, uh, how does that work for something like this? Like, uh, probably I'm a little bit familiar with how you know drug development stuff works in the states with the FDA, but it's a very very basic knowledge. So, how does that work here? And is that part of what needs to change in order to build up this sector in Canada? It needs to change, but probably not in the way you're asking the question. So okay. when you look at drug development and discovery, um, most of the companies are doing their work for the U.S. marketplace. In fact, investors okay. will say, if you're not developing it for the U.S., if, you're, if you come to me and you want $50 million for your company and you're saying, I'm developing a drug for Canadians, they'll just say, I'm not interested because it's not a big enough market. Like Canada is 2% of the global marketplace for, for drugs. So you're always developing for the global marketplace, and usually the, your primary uh, regulator is the U.S., the FDA. Uh, but when a drug does eventually come to Canada for Canadians, there is Health Canada is, is the one; they are the ones that handle the regulatory process. And so, why say you're at the answer to your question is not going to be the the one you're looking for? It becomes really important from a regulatory standpoint for the global pharma companies. And our regulatory process here has to be as modern and agile as possible because we want to attract them. They're actually a really essential part of the ecosystem. If you think of the ecosystem, like, like I'll use the coral reef as a good example of an ecosystem. The coral reef has, has all sorts of constituents in it, right? You've got your coral, you've got your pretty fish, you've got your ugly fish, you've got your sharks, you've got your plankton, your algae, sunlight, pH balance, all that stuff all has to be healthy. And if one component of that is not healthy, then that can have a really detrimental impact on the entire coral reef. In fact, it can cause the coral reef to die. And so if I think about the biotech ecosystem in Canada as a coral reef, and you got all your different kinds of fish, well, the, the global pharma are a really important part. You can call them plankton, you can call them algae, whatever it is, but they're nutrients for this ecosystem. And the way to keep them in the ecosystem is you've got to have them here commercially active and bringing their new drugs, their therapies here to Canada. And particularly when you think about the new technologies that are coming, our regulatory system has to keep pace with that. It has to understand what's coming, really get out in front of it and, and get the expertise when you think about cell and gene therapies, real game changers. And are we ready for them as a country from a regulatory perspective? Because if we're not, they will be late coming here and those companies will not be as active in, in the ecosystem here. So that, I think, is the more important part of why regulatory is so important in terms of how you sort of take a drug and approve it for Canadians. It's really in terms of the, the global pharma industry as opposed to the early stage companies who are probably more often going through the U.S. marketplace to get their approvals. Okay. And are our regulators, like, are they generally slower than the FDA, for example? No, we, we actually have a very good regulatory process here. In fact, it's okay. a competitive advantage to come through Canada right now. Hmm. 
that's based on what we see, what we know. Even if you look at the at the vaccines that came out during the pandemic, I think Health Canada did a remarkable job of uh, pro- you know doing the due diligence and approving the vaccines for Canadians. Um, but a, a lot of companies will bring their products here to Canada for regulatory approval because a they get a good um, approval process that allows them to launch in other jurisdictions. So if you put aside the U.S., if you've been approved in Canada. A lot of other countries around the world will say, well, if the Canadian regulators approved it, then it's good enough for us because they're, mm. they're recognized globally as, as, as very good regulators. But that's not good enough. Things are changing really quickly. And, and mRNA vaccines would be a great example. That was something they weren't dealing with five years ago. And all of a sudden, it's on their doorstep. We know there are other similar types of technologies they haven't yet seen. Are they ready for them? And what are they doing to get ready? And certainly that's something as an association that do- deals primarily with the federal government we're working on with them to say, okay, here's what's coming and can we get ready for it? Because if we are ready for it, it does two things. One is it allows those therapies to come sooner for Canadian patients, which is which is great. But they used to also come earlier in the form of clinical trials. And so if a company is looking at this as a regulatory launch point, they're going to do clinical trials in this country. And the benefit to the healthcare system of doing clinical trials here is, is a massive but it also allows for the us to develop an expertise in clinical trials, which benefits the early stage companies, which will also do clinical trials here in Canada if you've got the if you've got the mm-hmm. ability to do them here. So that again, that health of the ecosystem is what that allow that regulatory um, process does to bring those big companies here and support the growth of, of the clinical trials and the, the emergence of new technologies for Canadian patients. Okay, this is my last question because I know we're getting to the end of the hour here, but I guess. In so many of these conversations, I really wonder about the disadvantages that are created by being right next to the Americans, such a big market. Are there any advantages that Canada has over America when it comes to a biotech founder or a biotech company deciding where to to anchor their business? Is there anything that we should be focusing on as like this is something that we can do better so that, you know, maybe in the future a company like Moderna stays in Canada or, you know, Derek Rossi, but there's what do we call it? Sleeping next to the giant or the, you know, the gorilla, if it rolls over yeah. or whatever the expression is, but, but yeah, there's advantages and disadvantages. So, so disadvantages, let's, let's look at this proximity. Well, so it's in a very similar business climate. It's very easy for a company to move from Vancouver to Texas. No problem, right? And if Texas is going to put out the welcome mat and give them really low tax rates and and all sorts of other freebies, then the company's going to go, their their investors are going to say, move to Texas. So that's always a risk. It would be harder for a company to move to, say, Poland than than it would be to Texas. Uh, But in this virtual world now, it's getting even a bit crazier, right? Where you can say, uh, you can move the company to Texas and the people that were working for it in Vancouver can kind of stay there. and, And so... There's, there's the the roots are not able to sort of really grasp sometimes just because of the way things are changing, but that cuts both ways. So we can equally attract companies from Texas to come up to work in Canada if, if the tax rates are good and they can get access to talent. Um, so I, I think that um, I look at it like like it's a bigger advantage. So if you're next to the U.S., you've got a massive talent pool just south of you. It's a country that most Americans feel like they could live in if they had to move here to, to take a job. So they're not feeling like the language thing now, Quebec is slightly different, but but for the most part, they would feel like I can move to Toronto, I can move to Vancouver, and it'd be just like living in Seattle or just like living in New York City. So that's that's good. Uh, well, they may not feel the same way about moving to Europe or, or other parts of the world. Um, you have a massive venture capital pool just in the south, so it's easy to tap into that. Probably easier for Canadians to tap into that venture capital pool than it would be for Europeans. Although if you have good, really good science, you're probably going to be able to attract investors no matter where you're, you're based. But it's easy for a company from Montreal to go down to see the venture capitalist in, in Boston or in, in New York and, and have those conversations. So that's that's a huge advantage. Um, you've got supply chain. So U.S., a lot of the products that come out of there, you can get up to Canada. You can look vice versa. You can manufacture stuff here and send it down there. So I think the ability to be, from a geographical standpoint, just get stuff on trains or, or put them in cars or whatever it is and get it down, that, that's a huge advantage. Culture, pretty similar culture from a business standpoint, so it's pretty easy to do business. 
we as Canadians have a global reputation for doing very good clinical trials, for doing good science and research. So that's being taken advantage of the low Canadian dollar. Mm. I think got a lot of advantages, uh, but it is, again, it's a very competitive space. It's become hyper-competitive post-COVID where every country is now saying we have to up our game and invest heavily in our own biomanufacturing capacity. And so they are aggressively courting at companies and the talent and the investors to come to their countries as well. And so I'm not so sure that we have to worry only about the U.S. I think we have to worry about all the countries around the world who would love to have our companies and the people that work for them. To keep things on a positive note, my last question is around sure. any uh, exciting ideas that you're seeing come out of the sector right now, specifically within Canada. I remember when I first took this job 11 years ago, I went, I thought, well, I don't know anything about biotechnology, so I, I should go out and talk to the companies and see them. And so I went across the country and talked to a lot of our members and they would tell me what they're working on. Um, and I kind of was excited about the industry to begin with, but after you talk to them, you're like, oh, this is the most amazing industry in the world. You've got companies that are using the mosquito that carries the malaria virus to solve for cancer. Another company that's taking the saliva from a shrew and turning that into a therapeutic for cancer. Uh, you've got a company that's doing 3D printing of cell tissues to do drug testing and drug development. You've got a, you know AI that's coming in. And, and so like it's a unbelievably fascinating industry. And I've found myself saying this repeatedly um, obviously, I wish we never had the COVID experience. I never want to go through it again. That being said, I could think of no other industry that's been more exciting to be in than this one during that period to see the types of pivoting that the companies were able to do, move into solving for it, the types of innovations that are emerging, and some of the technologies that are now coming out through AI and the other developments that are in terms of the cell and gene therapies, which are actually pretty good at in Canada. I just think that the industry's got such enormous upside and it's so exciting to see what they're developing. Um, I have huge concerns on the environmental side when you think about sleeping giant that's out there where we've had all sorts of warnings from the intergovernment panel on climate change throughout the pandemic saying, uh, well, you're all focused on the pandemic. Guess what? The environment's continuing to change and we're not doing anything about it. So the solutions that we're going to need for that are, are equally exciting. And, and just think about that example I used of the company that's generating um, aviation fuel out of mustard seeds. It's those types of technologies that you go, okay, those are game changers. And if we're doing the same thing in the health space, it's hard not to fall in love with what's coming out of this sector. I think it's a, it's a remarkable industry. And then you layer into that, most of the people that are running these companies have a personal story. So they had an experience where either a family member or a friend fell ill and they just became determined to try and figure out the solution for that because they didn't want to see anybody else go through it. And so they are vested in that company, not only financially, but very from an emotional standpoint as well. And, and so to see that passion that's brought to the entrepreneurship, I just think it's an absolutely phenomenal industry. And again, this is not unique to Canadians. I think you're seeing it around the world, but certainly when I look at the Canadian space and the companies that are in Canada, it really is an exciting place to be. I, I definitely have a newfound appreciation for the sector coming out of this conversation. Thank you, Andrew, for the fascinating discussion and for, for taking the time. Yeah, that was great. Thank you, Sarah and Taylor. Appreciate it. All right, Sarah. Well, I learned a lot in that conversation with Andrew. I guess to start it off, just the insight that biotech is way bigger than just pharma and drugs, that's something that I didn't really appreciate before. Like how he was talking about different enzymes that could be used to turn, I think, mustard seeds into jet fuel, that sort of thing. It's a whole area that I've never really thought about before. Yeah, that was a, a fascinating uh, conversation. Honestly, I, I kind of think I want to become a scientist after that because so many cool things that you just don't really think about. Uh, what were your biggest takeaways? I think one of them was just how much more complex the supply chains for some of these things are like you know during the pandemic there was a lot of discussion here about how we didn't have the capacity to manufacture the vaccines and i thought it was interesting the point that andrew raised about how actually you know it was a canadian company that manufactured part of the delivery mechanism for the vaccines and it was a right. german company that did another part of it and then of course you know pfizer uh finished it off and and did the actual like and 
end of the production line, I guess, but there's a whole like global assembly line that goes into making these products. And so even if we aren't, you know, making vaccines or making the end product here, there's still a way for Canada to have a biotech sector. So just like that nuance, I think is helpful when we, we look at um, how the biotech sector is doing in Canada. It's also fascinating how much of what Andrew was talking about, you can kind of apply to other industries in the sense of totally. like what it actually takes to build a thriving ecosystem when it comes to anything, right? I think the example he used was mm-hmm. technology, right? How BlackBerry just kind of deciding to set up shop was in itself massive for the industry in ways that I don't think um, I understood before how when a mm-hmm. company like that sets up shop, it attracts investment, it attracts talent, it attracts other companies that just want to like be beside you in terms of the real estate that they take mm-hmm. up. So I, it seems like what would be exciting for the sector is to have that equivalent for biotech, you know, to get one of the big producers kind of riding maybe an uptick in an exciting type of, you know, research development, whether it's, you know, vaccine related or not or anything else. But like, what is going to be that company that um, that is kind of riding the wave and decides to stay put in Canada and with them attracting all the good things that come along with, you know, come along with uh, being, I, I guess, like a player that sets up shop. Yeah, I think he mentioned Abcelera as maybe one that could be that in British Columbia. Uh, and it, yeah, it, it is interesting because you do see this across different sectors now as I feel like there's more attention being paid to how do we build specific types of industries rather than just, you know, maybe economic growth generally, but how do we build an EV industry? How do we build a battery manufacturing industry? How do we build these biotech uh, industries? Yeah, a ton of parallels with the EV industry right now, as you mentioned. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. What do you think? Yeah, let's leave it there. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And you can find all our episodes with so many interesting guests, just like Andrew, by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.